Bible books in 30 minutes. Through the Bible, book by book, with author, pastor and Bible teacher, Mike Beaumont, who's talking to David Tavner. In this conversation, we're going to be focusing on the first book of Chronicles. We've had a lot of history in the previous episodes, Mike. It was the whole history section. Is this yet more history? It really is. And that's an interesting phrase that you used there, David, because the title of this book in Hebrew is not Chronicles, but the annals of the days, the records of the days. So it really is a history book. Interestingly, when the Hebrew text was translated into the Greek edition, the Septuagint, it was renamed The Things Omitted. And it was only St. Jerome, when he did his Latin version, the Vulgate, he changed it to the Chronicles of the Whole of Sacred History, shortened now to Chronicles. So we have got more history. And the interesting thing about 1 and 2 Chronicles, as we come to look at this history, is, well, any school teacher would look at this and think, there's been some copying going on here. Because there are huge chunks of 1 and 2 Chronicles that, frankly, are just taken from 1 and 2 Kings, almost verbatim, and inserted into this text with some additions and some uh, omissions. So it is history, and it it almost looks like a repeat of what we have seen already in 1 and 2 Kings. But as we'll see it, it's a repeat with a different purpose and different emphases. I suppose the very nature of how history is recorded, it's often recorded for a particular reason and from a particular point of view. So what makes One Chronicles different? What makes it different is this. The history of Israel recorded in 1 and 2 Kings was written when Israel and Judah had been taken into exile. Israel now was no more dispersed by the Assyrians. Judah taken by Babylon and kept in people groups in the nation of Babylon in exile. And it's while they were there in exile that they started to think, why have we ended up here? And the answer they came up with was because of our disobedience to God over centuries. And so they wrote up their history based on previous records that they have, some of which are actually referred to in Kings and Chronicles, And they wrote up the history really to answer the question, how did we end up here in exile? The answer was because of our disobedience. But 1 and 2 Chronicles, originally one book, just like 1 and 2 Kings were, was written not in that time of exile, but rather when Judah came back from exile, just as Jeremiah had promised that they would do one day because God was faithful. And when they come back, back to the promised land and face the task of rebuilding their nation and their life, the most burning question now is, is God still with us? And so what the chronicler does is to go back over the sweep of their history using one and two kings to look to that history, but now to select parts of it deliberately with one purpose, to answer the question, is God still with us? Of course he is. And why is he still with us? Well, because he's at a plan that goes right back to the beginning, 
that we are still part of and because he made a promise to David and his descendants. So it does the same sweep of history, covering much of the same sort of material, some missed out, some added to, included that isn't in 1 and 2 Kings. But now to answer this question, not how did we end up here, but rather to answer the question, is God still with us? And the resounding answer 1 and 2 Chronicles gives is, Despite all that we have been through, yes, God is still with us. And here's the reason why. It sounds like it paints a very favourable picture of the life of David. Uh, Yes, it does. Uh, And in fact, we might almost say that some of the bad bits of his life have been airbrushed out in this account. But it's not really that, because the author of 1 and 2 Chronicles had one and two kings as everyone else did. So those stories are there and clear. So it's not like he's trying to reinterpret history like some politicians or rulers might try to do today. No, we've got that. What he's doing is he's saying, so let me tell you the story again, focusing on the bits that we especially need to hear at the moment. And those bits they need to hear will focus very much on the promises that are given to David. Now, before he gets to David, he actually has a quite lengthy section in 1 Chronicles that, if we're really honest, we would find, dare I say, pretty boring reading. Sort of family history, really. It is the first nine chapters of what we call a genealogy that traces the history of Israel right back to the beginning, right back to Adam, to show that the Israel that had returned from exile is still at the heart of God's purposes, right back to the beginning, to Adam, to Abraham, to Isaac, to Jacob, and yes, especially to David, whose story he then begins to unfold. He passes over uh, the story of Saul pretty quickly in chapters 8 to 10, because really that was a bit of a sad uh, phase of Israel's life. But from chapter 11, he launches straight into the story of David, because this is the key character for the writing, is the promises to David that there would always be a man upon the throne, that his descendants would continue, that, that Israel would continue. And so the author is focusing very much on him. And unlike 1 and 2 Samuel, where we get the story of how Saul declined and David rose up over a period of 10 years, then seven years in Hebron before he becomes king of the United Nations, 1 Chronicles 11 launches straight in. All Israel came to David at Hebron and said, you know, you're our own flesh and blood. You're the one that God has called. So right from the start here, we've got David in a positive light. Everyone saying, we always knew that you were called to be king. And then it goes on to summarize how he conquered Jerusalem and gathered people to himself and brought back the ark to Jerusalem when that became the temple. And to paint this very, very positive picture of David the promises made to him by God, that covenant promise that God made that we saw in 2 Samuel 7 is repeated in 1 Chronicles 17, the promise that God would build a nation through David. And 
that while David wanted to build a house for God, no, God was going to build a house for David. And that is picked up in these chapters. So the focus is very, very much on the promises to David, the success of David, David's preparation for the temple that would be built and so on. Virtually nothing about the weaknesses in David that we see in 1 and 2 Samuel. Can I just go back to the genealogies as you describe them? Mm. Because sometimes there are little gems, little references to individuals that otherwise might have got overlooked. Are, are there any in this one? Oh, Absolutely. I mean, do, do you know what? To be honest, it, it can be hard work just plodding through this where uh, the writer is establishing the line of history that goes right through to the Jews who there were there and, and had returned through Adam and Abraham and Isaac and, and Jacob. And you get these long lists that the sons of so-and-so were A, B, C, D, these unpronounceable names for many of us. And the reality is that many of us will read these bits and probably skim read and yet don't skim read too fast because, as you say, there are some little treasures, some little gems, a bit like digging for diamonds. There's a lot of dust and muck around, but in there there are some diamonds. One of them is in 1 Chronicles chapter 4, where we're introduced to a man called Jabez and suddenly in the midst of this, the son of, the son of, the son of, we read this, that Jabez was more honourable than his brothers. His mother had named him Jabez, saying, I gave birth to him in pain. Now, the, the name Jabez in Hebrew sounds like the word for pain, so she'd named him after what she'd experienced. <laughs> Fancy going through life being called pain. <laughs> and then we read this. Jabez cried out to the God of Israel, Oh, that you would bless me and enlarge my territory. Let your hand be with me and keep me from harm so that I will be free from pain. And God granted his request. Now, these little sort of inserts uh, weren't unusual in the history of that time. We find them in, in other people groups' uh, histories. So it's not unusual in itself. Why was this one included? Do you know what? The short answer is I don't know, but I might have one suspicion because I think what happens here is Jabez, pain, had ended up living out the life that he was named. And he comes to a point in his life where he says, I know my past, but I refuse to have my future shaped by my past. I refuse to go on living as Mr. Payne. And so he calls out to God and says, God, that you would keep me from pain and let me come into all that you have got for me. And that, of course, was the very thing that Israel needed to do. It needed to know its history, needed to know where it had come from, where it had been, but it also needed to know that God could break in and now do things anew for them. So I think that's why this little story is just dropped in here. The man who knew where he'd come from, knew what he was, but refused to let that define him. And of course, that's the message that we get in the gospel of Jesus in the New Testament. 
that knowing who we are, knowing what we've been through, facing up to that, owning up to it, acknowledging the parts that we've done wrong is important. But when we do that, Jesus is well able to not disregard our past, but redeem us from those bits we need redeeming from and to not let our past limit our future. That's what Israel needed to know at that time. Frankly, that's what everyone still needs to know today, that our past does not have to limit our future when we bring God into the equation. So despite that, maybe fairly long and what thought we thought was a dull genealogy, it's actually still all pointing to David and the significance of David and his example and how he was central to the life of the people under God. What else does it tell us about David uh, that, that is perhaps fresh or new? Well, it's interesting that perhaps if we think of some of the things that are added that we don't get in such detail or even at all in 1 Kings. One of the interesting things is in chapter 11 and chapter 12, where it reminds us of the people that David had gathered. So it's sort of looking back to that period when he was on the run from Saul and people were gathering to him. And we get introduced to some of these. And there's some beautiful little gems in this as well, which is why it's worth reading carefully. So we're introduced to David's mighty men, some of his military leaders. And if I just read you, say, one little bit of that, talks here about Eliezer, son of Dodai, the Ahohite, was one of the three mighty men. He was with David at Pas Damim when the Philistines gathered there for the battle. And at a place where there was a field full of barley, the troops fled from the Philistines but they took their stand in the middle of the field and defended it and struck the rocks down. You know, there are times in life when we just have to take a stand in the middle of the field, not going running and hiding and saying, this is where I have to stand. I can go no further. Maybe even for some people listening today, they felt under pressure, felt they needed to run. And there are times in life when we just need to Take our stand and trust that God will come and help us. So one of those little gems you talked about there. Um, similar one in chapter 12, which is looking back to that time when David was on the run that we read about in 1 Samuel, but which is not covered here, but it's like a little flashback at this point. And it talks about the men who came to David at Ziklag. Ziklag was a fortress that he'd been given by the Philistines. You perhaps remember from a previous episode, we said that when David was on the run, you know, he'd hidden in caves and forests and hills. And at one point, he'd even had to go over to the Philistines and to pretend to be a mercenary for them. And they gave him like his own town called Ziklag. And it's while he's there that people gathered to him. And it says that people gathered there who were armed with bows and were able to shoot arrows or sling stones, right-handed or left-handed. That's pretty unusual in those days. Hmm. Uh, some Gadites defected to David. They were brave warriors, ready for battle, able to handle the shield and the spear. So these are gifted men. But here's the bit that I really love in chapter 12. The Spirit of God comes upon one of these people 
And he says, we are yours, O David. We are with you, O son of Jesse. Success, success to you and success to those who help you. For your God will be with you. And just a couple of things that that strike me there is, first of all, this absolute commitment to David, this incredible loyalty to him. And secondly, the Christ, success, success to you. Not success to us, not success to me. And I think there is something so godly there about a life that longs to give itself for the success and the blessing of others rather than that focuses on ourselves. So while there are some difficult passages, yes, in 1 Chronicles, it's not for the faint-hearted, it's not a book I'd say start reading your Bible here. For those who prepare to dig through it, particularly if you've already read 1 and 2 Samuel and 1 and 2 Kings, then this is a great book and there are some precious little gemstones hidden away in the rocks here. And it gives us an insight, obviously, into David's life and some of his uh, areas of focus, uh, including around the temple and how important that was. I think there's something around the importance of the musicians and the singers. I'm trying to, you know, imagine the sounds associated with the temple that probably we don't think of very much. Yeah, that's very good. One of the things we discover in one chronicles that we haven't discovered in the books of Samuel is that the reason David wasn't allowed to build the temple was that God said to him, you've got blood on your hands. You've been the one who's been the warrior. Now that's, that's not an accusation from God. It's a statement of truth. David had been the man who had had to fight many enemies and establish the kingdom of Israel and bring it all together And here is God saying in 1 Chronicles that, look, I see what's in your heart. I know what you want to do. And no, I'm going to build a house for you, not you build one for me like we've seen in 2 Samuel 7. But here is another reason given. I can't let you build this house because you've got blood on your hands. And I, I, I need this holy temple to be built by someone who's not got blood on their hands. So what David will do is if he can't build a temple, he will prepare for it. And the last sort of third of 1 Chronicles is really all about preparations for the temple, getting materials for the temple, the best that he can find, making a plan for the temple. But yes, there's also this thing about the ministry of music and singing that he also makes preparation for. Now, we know that David was a a singer himself. We know that he loved singing from his earliest days. We discover in 1 Samuel, when he is brought to King Saul, he's brought to King Saul because he plays a nifty harp and he can knock out a good tune on it and sing a good song. And that had a way of soothing King Saul when he went into one of his manic phases. And it looks like when David was up there on the hills as the young shepherd boy watching over the sheep, he he took his harp there and would often strum a few chords and probably some of those early psalms took origin there. Certainly things like Psalm 23 was written out of his experience as a young shepherd boy. 
But David, from the beginning then, had this, he had a song in his heart for the Lord. He loved singing worship songs. And so one of the things that happens here is that he sets apart musicians and singers. And if I just do a quote here, he sets apart musicians and singers to quotes to proclaim God's messages to the accompaniment of lyres, harps and cymbals. So in other words, he recognized that music and song can bring God's word to us as much as a sermon or, or a spoken prophetic word. You know, there's something about music and song that can sometimes get into your heart in a way that a sermon or a message cannot do. I mean, I can remember personally when the coronavirus first started to take hold around the world and there was that group, I, frankly, I can't even remember where they were from, who was the first ones to do it, but they sang the ironic blessing, the Lord bless you and keep you, the Lord make his face to shine upon you. And it was done online with people in different places. And then that was repeated again and again by different groups and different churches, which is why I can't even remember where it came from. But I remember hearing that song and letting it wash over me and, and my heart feeling deeply stirred and tears coming down from my eyes because it was doing what David recognised and what David was preparing for here, that music and singing can be an incredibly powerful ministry for God, not just entertainment. That's the last thing we want in church today but as a, as a means of drawing us into God's presence and also bringing God's word to us. So he makes a lot of preparation, not just for the sort of bricks and mortar and the artifacts that are going to go into the temple eventually, the temple that Solomon, his son, will build, but he makes provision in this way. And, you know, one of the things that you see pretty quickly when you read some of these historical books, but also when you read the Psalms, both the ones that David wrote and some that were written by other worship leaders of the times, is that temple worship was a, a pretty noisy and lively affair. It was not accompanied by a solemn organ by any means, but it had all kinds of instruments, stringed instruments, wind instruments, percussion instruments, there was lots of singing and clapping and dancing, and we see lots of that in the Psalms. We see that David himself was an exuberant worshipper. We've got at least one example of that where he dances furiously to accompany the ark coming back to Jerusalem to the point where his wife feels pretty disgusted by what he does. And he says, listen, I was doing it before the Lord. I'm not bothered what you think. So the ministry of music and singing, very important for David to the point that he makes incredible provision for it for when the temple will finally be built. Bearing in mind that having been told by God that he wasn't to build the temple, he could have turned around and then not felt very good about that and, you know, become bitter, etc. because that was a crucial thing to be involved with. But that wasn't the case. Yeah, absolutely. That's a good thought, um, David, because it would be very easy, wouldn't it, to sort of, I suppose we might say, almost go off in a huff hmm. uh, and even a huff with God and say, well, all right, then fine, you know, blow it. I won't bother. But no, the, 
God, you know, he, he had in his heart this passionate desire to build the temple. And he thought, well, okay, if God, you're saying to me, I can't build it because I've blood on my hands. Remember, that's not a curse, but rather a statement of fact. If my role has been to be the warrior rather than the worshipper, then do you know what? I'm going to do everything in my power to make it possible for someone else. And I think that's such a powerful challenge to us because there are times when we can't do things ourselves, but it does lie in our power to make it possible for other people to do things. And it's a good test of our hearts because if in our hearts we say, well, you know, the pastor might say to us, thank you so much for what you've done in bringing this ministry to this point, but we need someone else to take it on to the next stage. Is our heart to say, well, I'm going to do whatever I can to serve that person and that ministry or, or to go off in a bit of a huff. And, and David, you're absolutely right, did not choose that option. He did everything possible to make it really easy for his son to build the temple, both by this preparing the music and the, and the singing for it in terms of uh, encouraging people to bring gifts to the temple. So in chapter 29, he gathers the leaders of the people and basically says, well, here's my resources. Here's my gift. He leads the way. That's always good. You know, pastors are making an appeal for gifts. Let them be the first to put their hand in the pocket and to give generously. And he makes this incredible financial gift towards the temple and then says, now, who's willing to consecrate himself to the Lord today? I've led the way. Who's coming? Who's coming with me? So incredible generosity. Do you know what generosity, not just of heart, a generosity of spirit that seemed to characterize this guy? The two are connected. Very much so. And do you know what? If we aren't generous out of our pockets, I don't think we should convince ourselves we're generous in our spirit. And if we do think we're generous in our spirit, then it will always spill over to being generous out of our pockets to bless others and bless other ministries, even ministries that that are beyond ourselves, even ministries, and I can say this perhaps in a way that you can't, even ministries like UCB that will reach places that we personally couldn't reach ourselves. You said at the beginning that the book of Chronicles, this first book, kind of addresses that question, is God still with us? And it's answered through the life of David. So as you come back to 1 Chronicles, and as you say, it's not always an easy read, what would you say is the, the main lesson to learn from it? I, I think I'd probably sum it up with this simple sentence. God is always with us. Do you know, even when we've messed up, even when we've got it wrong, which is exactly what Israel and Judah had done, not just once, not just twice, but over centuries and centuries, God's patience had prevailed with them. But even when we've got it wrong, we can always believe that God is still with us, still there, ready to welcome us back. Now, that's not to say God says, oh, never mind, it's not important. There are times when we have to repent of things, say we are sorry restore things, put things right that we have done wrong. But, you know, if we will come back to God like Israel was doing at this point, because their 
time in exile, as we'll see in a future episode, certainly was quite chastening, certainly made them face up to the fact that they had messed up big time. And as they come back, they come back resolving that they want to do it right this time. And so this message of 1 Chronicles, that God is still with us, even when we've got it wrong, even when we've messed up, if we will, from our side, acknowledge what we've done wrong, and from his side, appeal to the promises that he has made in the past, which is what happens in this book, a reminding of their past, then do you know what? We can with confidence say, God is going to be with us as we move forward from here. I've done my part. God's made his promise. And now I'm going to move forward, believing that what God has said, God will do, because ultimately, this is not about me. This is about him. And God is a God who is always faithful to his promises. Mike Beaumont has been talking to David Tabernack. Listen to more episodes anytime. Bible books in 30 minutes. Through the Bible, book by book, from Genesis to Revelation. This is a United Christian Broadcasters production. For more about UCB, check out the website at ucb.co.uk.